Hello and welcome. I'm Amy Smith and you're listening to The Next Page, the podcast of the Library and Archives at UN Geneva. In this episode, we continue our exploration of multilateralism. Catherine Lavelle is the Ellen and Dixon Long Professor in World Affairs at the Department of Political Affairs at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Professor Lavelle is a permanent member of the New York Council on Foreign Relations and is a Global Fellow of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in its Global Europe program. She also serves as a member of the Editorial Review Board of the UNCTAD journal Transnational Corporations. Professor Lavelle joined Francesco Pisano, the director of the Library and Archives, for a conversation around the ideas in her recent book, The Challenges of Multilateralism. She describes multilateralism as being the study of contrasts in motion, and as she weaves the story of the evolution of multilateralism from the 19th century to the present day, she writes that the incredible part of the story is that despite catastrophic failures along the way, humanity keeps trying to construct new ways to cooperate and to include more groups into these attempts. Francesco Pisano likens reading her book to being taken along on a journey. Catherine Lavelle has carefully mapped the shifting terrain and changing actors across time. And it is indeed a fascinating journey and a wide perspective. Let's join them in their conversation. Professor Catherine Lavelle, thank you so much for joining us on the next page, this podcast of our library and archives designed to advance the conversation on multilateral. It's so nice to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and it's such an important time right now in world politics. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues because they affect so many people. And so do we. And today we have this amazing chance of talking to you about your latest book, which is The Challenges of Multilateralism. And this is a book that it couldn't be more timely today. We just concluded here in the UN some 18 months of a program to celebrate 100 years of organized multilateralism here in Geneva. The UN has turned 75 this year, so it's really great to be able to be discussing your new book together with you. But before we go there, would you mind just introducing yourself to our audience who may not have heard your name and so that they know how you got into the study of multilateralism and what you teach at university? Well, I'm a professor at Case Western Reserve University, which is a university in Cleveland, Ohio, in the Midwest. And I teach uh, basic courses in international relations, U.S. foreign policy, and most of my research specialization is in financial affairs and economic affairs. That's what most of my work has been on. That's great. So let's start with your book. Your latest book focuses on multilateralism, in particular on the challenges of multilateralism. Would you like to tell us, our audience, a little bit about the context? So I went to college in Washington, D.C., and I used to ride my bicycle around the Vietnam Veterans Memorial when it was a new memorial. So this is back in the 1980s. Everyone knows how old I am. And I think that the experience of seeing families there really made me want to study the phenomenon of war and peace 
but with the sense of human devastation of what people lose in a war and how long it stays with them after the war was over. So I thought I was going to be a diplomat. I uh, thought that I was going to work for the State Department, and I actually did work for the State Department while I was in school for a summer in uh, the U.S. Embassy. And, you know, this experience of working in politics made me see what the differences are with what we learn in school. I decided to stay in school. I really love teaching. And I went on to get a Ph.D. in political science. And my dissertation was on the African group of states in Ankad. So I'd been to Geneva. That was my first trip to the archives when I worked in the archives in the 1990s. And it was a very exciting time at the U.N. So the Cold War was ending and there was this sense of of possibility that the U.N. system could become what its founders had intended, but that the Cold War had made nearly impossible for many of these dreams. So it was an exciting time. I was studying the group of 77. So I was interested in these economic issues. And that was a time of tumult for the group of 77. There was an awful lot of internal divisions based on how countries had responded to the world economy. So when I went back to finish my PhD and wrote books, I spent a year on Capitol Hill doing oversight of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And I think that in writing the book, one of the things I really wanted to bring in is how the domestic and the international are connected, but also how practical world of politics, what all of you do in Switzerland, what people do in Washington, how that connects to what we learn in universities and what we have to offer as academics. And now that the book is finally with us and it's part of our collection here, the Library of the United Nations here in Geneva, I'd like our audience to get a peak review of its contents. So let's start from the beginning. In the preface to your book, you write that multilateralism is a study of contrast in motion. I like that very much because it reminds me of this constant tension that there is in our area of work between the individualistic focus of by states on their own domestic interest and the aspiration for peace and welfare that basically is embedded in every one of us as humans. So in the first three chapters of your book, you really put the matter into its historical context. I think when we talk about multilateralism, talking about the history of multilateralism is so important. And so let's start with that. Can you tell us a little bit about this historical context? You know, I'm sure your listeners know this very famous quote from Dog Hammer School that the United Nations was not created to bring us to heaven. It was to prevent us from going to hell. I think what I tried to do in the first three chapters was give the readers a sense of depth and the breadth of the hell that multilateralism was intending and has always intended to prevent. Because when something doesn't happen, we don't always realize how bad it would be if it did. So, of course, the primary hell was war. And the, the beginning of the project is obviously the end of the Napoleonic Wars and conference diplomacy in Europe, but also World War One and the devastation of World War II are very important. Um, the other hell is obviously poverty and, and, the, and the dislocation that came from the Industrial Revolution as workers were brought into a wage labor economy, but at the same time didn't have the same safety nets and social situation that they had before industrialization. Obviously, disease is one of these problems that has deep roots 
in the 1800s. And the same conflicts with disease existed. So the book talks about British trade routes and the problem of cholera and preventing cholera. Now, scientifically, they didn't understand how cholera was spread and all the rest, but they understood that in fighting it, they didn't want to destroy the British economy. So there's obviously the hell of human rights abuses. And now... Our particular hell that we confront is obviously uncontrolled climate change. But again, origins of these problems go back to the 1800s. So the first three chapters try to set that stage and lay out the foundation for industrialization, what industrialization did well, what it what it didn't do. So if you have businesses operating in your country, you need to have a postal system. And what I want to argue as the countries and state formation took place at the same time, this international process took place. And the international process is linking up these post offices across different countries to make it possible to have trade and, and industrialization. Longitude and time standardization is another thing. You know, to have that, everybody's watch has to have a, a common notion of time. They didn't need that before. So you had to have standardization. You had to have standard setting bodies. And so those are the one side of the work that multilateral organizations did, but also war is perhaps the one that we think of more with respect to diplomacy and the advances of industrialization that made war so much more horrific, the kinds of weapons, the number of weapons that factories could produce. So the devastation exploded and then the need to try to contain the worst impulses of that process come out through these multilateral agreements. So um, you definitely see that in the early origins. The, the next two chapters are more specific. Obviously, the culmination after World War One was the institution of the League of Nations. Uh, after World War II was the United Nations system. But the rise of the United States as a global power and the rise of the Soviet Union are very important in setting the stage for the kinds of great power conflicts that have impeded the work of many international organizations. And then the most important thing, probably for most of the world's population, is that after World War II, um, most of the world's population moved from some kind of a colonial or dependent status into a state system and then participated in these new multilateral organizations. And they presented their own opportunities for people in what we would call developing countries. They also created all kinds of problems because the old alignments didn't necessarily stand up. So the chapter three of the first three goes through the creation of Altad, obviously my my favorite <laughs> from my dissertation, but obviously the new international economic order and all the rest. At the same time, your book is intended for a wide audience. This is something I really like about your book. It's very easy to read. It actually takes you on this journey through its 10 chapters or so. And I really like that. And so congratulations on that to make a matter that is quite obscure to, to most people who are not uh, involved in the professional area of diplomacy and multilateralism, quite accessible to, to students, but also to a wide audience. So I wanted to ask you just portrayed very rapidly this great evolution, this very long evolution throughout the, the decades, starting with the League of Nations, continuing with the UN, then the Cold War, then the end of the Cold War, that feeling of hope and rebirth that we all went through in the 90s. I wanted to ask you, in your understanding as a professor, how has the perception of multilateralism changed over time in the minds of students and professionals that you have come across? 
Well, thank you for for the compliments on on my book. I appreciate it. But I think that um, I love teaching. And I think it's important to remember that our students don't all grow up in the same era, but they also don't come from the same places that they did. And that's been my experience as well. So as you point out, multilateralism has changed over time. The, The most important perception has to do with trade. So after World War II, we used to say, at least in the United States, that our policy was informed by Cordell Hull's loose notion that armies don't cross borders that are crossed by trade. So the United States supported building a world economy that was grounded in this movement of goods and services and then later finance. This was so boring in class. (laughs) You could not. Everybody wrote it down. I couldn't get a debate going. Everyone agreed. Slowly, though, outside of universities, the big change is the attitude. In the United States, the political alliance between labor and big business broke down. And then we started to see presidential candidates like Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot uh, much earlier come out and talk to workers whose jobs were lost. And the whole notion of the old GATT system and the World Trade Organization changed from being something that was promoting uh, wealth and prosperity and helping workers and business became something very negative. And um, I would say now free trade is an orphan in U.S. politics, even with the recent election. I I don't know what the, the, the future holds there. But the other change is obviously in where you come from. So as I pointed out, I wrote my dissertation on Africans in Altad. Africa was always had different views of these institutions, at least in my lifetime, because they were uh, this was the quote unquote lost development decade. So this was a time when African countries felt that they were being subjected to policies by these multilateral organizations. They felt were harmful. There were riots. So even within different fields of political science, if you went from African studies to international relations as a positive view of international organizations, whereas it was much more nuanced in many parts of the world because they were not always perceived as being friendly. So that's definitely been very interesting to watch uh, with students, but also with people I've interacted with outside of the universities. Thank you. So let's move to the core of the matter, which is the challenges of multilaterals. Actually, this is the word that gives the title to your book. And in a way, you know, it sounds as many voices that are now around us discussing, you know, multilaterals under pressure, multilaterals under criticism, multilaterals under attack even. So whatever that may be, the challenge of multilaterals occupy the center part of your book, actually five big chapters there that discuss the present multilateral order across eight issue areas. And I found that very comprehensive. And I would like you now to guide us through this part and highlight the main considerations regarding the present multilateral order? Well, they've always been under attack. (laughs) I don't know if that's good news or bad news. They've certainly always had problems. And I think that um, what we see in this part of the book is really there's always been a challenge between science. So we also now have this whole issue is science under attack, at least in the United States we do. But what I see going on is this interaction between scientific discovery and the ability uh, and the possibilities of industrial production and how politics are struggle because because this scientific discovery poses problems at the national and the international level as people have to cope 
with the new uh, reality around them. So if we think about uh, global and regional security, as we've already pointed out, global and regional security changed very dramatically when the Cold War ended. So you had had these multilateral institutions uh, like NATO, the Warsaw Pact, the Security Council that had stabilized the order. But when the Warsaw Pact disbanded and NATO took on new members, the organizations aren't necessarily stabilizing. For some parts of the world, they are, but for other parts, they pose now a threat or they, they, are, they make other parts of the world very insecure. So think about this part of the book at I like the whole Buddhist idea that you're supposed to ask yourself when something happens, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Because when you stretch it out over time, sometimes things that look very positive in one moment can look very negative. And I think the expansion of NATO is something that we don't have the final answer on. It looked very good when NATO expanded. It looked good when the Warsaw Pact expanded. The later rounds of NATO expansion, I don't even know how aware people in the United States were that they took place. They were so not important seeming. But the reaction that NATO expansion provoked uh, in Russia wasn't seen in one day or even a year. But over time, the sense that Russia was being sidelined or wasn't being considered a great power has reignited an awful lot of tensions and not just between um, equal adversaries anymore. So Russia doesn't have the same capabilities that it had maybe in the Cold War. But what we've seen now with technology is in fighting, it's used these weapons that are destabilizing democracies and driving wedges between allies. And I think for, for many of us, uh, that, that's been very distressing because I, I don't know that that was the intent of NATO expansion at all. I, I like a happier topic. Obviously, well, I don't know if it's happy because of the pandemic, but the health and the environment. It's something I learned a lot about writing this book. And when you look at the issues here, I remind students that when I was young, we didn't have words like environment and, and ecosystem. They were very new words. They were something that we didn't understand how an oil spill in California would affect the oceans or how the use of chemical like a chemical like DDT would affect birds and, and other animals so far away. So as we started to understand all of these connections through science, uh, the multilateral system had to react. And I think the challenge, as we say, is that many times the multilateral system reacts with the tools that it has. So it reacts with treaties, uh, conferences, and the way that we even go back to the 1800s and the, the 20th century as well, they can be uh, tools that worked, but maybe we need new ones. So I, I heard um, Ursula von der Leyen talking last week about all the hopeful work, actually, that's been done on climate at the city level. So even when the United States government pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, uh, many of us who follow the climate and environmental issues would say, hey, California, if you could work with the state of California, that's as big as many, many countries in the world. So I think there's possibility for multilateral cooperation. The challenge is that it's not going to operate through the same vehicles it did. So, um, you know, human rights are another area where science definitely played a role. The detonation of two atomic devices at the end of World War II and the genocide in Nazi Germany was a game changer. People realized that we could end all human life and uh, the, the actions of individuals, people within states became the concern of all of us. So we have to change our understanding of the way multilateralism works 
to take it down beneath the state level and say what people do has implications for global society. In the central part of your book, you also argue that it is the advance associated with scientific discovery and industrial production that alters politics within individual states and among them. Is this the only source of challenges of multilateralism or there is something within multilateralism that makes it age with time and less appropriate for the challenges that we're facing at global level? You mentioned a few trade, but it could be climate change, human rights, the well-being of, of humans together with the planet could be another one. Yeah, definitely. Um, multilateralism is a way of interacting that, that started with elites and the people who conducted diplomacy were very, were very elite level. And what we're seeing in democracies right now is the problem that the constituencies need to be behind the organizations themselves. And there is quite honestly, resistance to that. So I had done some work on the bankruptcy court, and I, I posed a question to a, a prominent official at uh, the International Monetary Fund about how it had failed, the IMF's idea for a bankruptcy court for states. And this official was, was very offended that I even introduced the notion that there needed to be constituencies in, in Western democracies beyond banks. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just sell a bankruptcy court to large investors and banks and think the taxpayers in any industrial democracy are going to support that. And they didn't have to in the 1800s. People didn't vote. There wasn't universal suffrage. So this has been something now when you have universal suffrage, people don't just want their tax dollars supporting these institutions. They can be brought along. One of the things that I have uncovered in the research is at different times they made efforts. They certainly made efforts in the United States with Congress to reach out to civil society. And, and even now, civil society is itself an elitist concept in many ways because the people who have the money to organize and go to conferences are the ones whose voices are heard. So these are challenges. But again, they're, they're not insurmountable once we know what they are. And indeed, in this part of the, of the book, you also write that the incredible part of the story is that despite catastrophic failures along the way, humanity keeps trying to construct new ways to cooperate. So let me ask you, you sound optimistic, of course, we all are. We, uh, it's a duty, the, the duty of hope. I define that as, as such. But as a researcher of multilateralism, do you think there is hope and why? Yeah, there's hope. I, I, I did write that. And I'm usually a great pessimist. So it's kind of surprising. I think for anyone who knows me, I always think that things are going to go bad. I, I like this idea that Innes Claude uh, had in his seminal uh, book, Swords into Plowshare. So this is, you know, an observation he made and other theorists have made, but one that is so important because even in the darkest hour of World War I, people were thinking about a League of Nations. And I think that for, for the last couple of years, uh, many of us uh, might get discouraged by the tone of the, the presidential administration. But I think, you know, this isn't anything like World War II. In the midst of World War II, people were confronting death and destruction, and, and they were still a group of them were trying to think, how can we get it right this time? And I think that, as I said, the World Health Organization has had problems with funding. Uh, other organizations have moved in on its turf. 
uh, like the World Bank or the Global Fund, but there's still things that we look to in a pandemic that the, only the World Health Organization can make treaties and, and can do certain things. And those people are going to work and carrying on. So what I like is the whole idea that I think for leaders and maybe the more glamorous people in the world, they have the luxury of language and the luxury of saying, I'm not going to go to a meeting or I'm going to fold my arms and act a certain way. But the rest of us have to go to work with people we don't necessarily like. We have to get along with students who might disagree with us. We have to do these things, not because we want to, but because we have to. We are alive and that is our job. So I like that David Mitrani quote at the end of the book that we aren't doing this because we want to police so much, but because we live, because we are alive in this world. And, and our tasks as people who are, are living is to fight poverty, to fight disease, and to fight ignorance. So it isn't all the police. It's, it's that we, we want to thrive as human beings. And to do that, I, I think international leaders frequently have the luxury of being able to check out or something. But the rest of us have to go along with it and we have to educate people and we have to try to stay safe in a pandemic. So we, we're going to keep looking to solutions, not because we're nice or something, but just because that's the work that the rest of us have to do in the world. And yet there are parts in your book, especially towards the end, when you discuss the past, present and future of multilateralism around chapter 10, when you also mentioned that this could be the end of the era of big multilateralism. What does it mean, big multilateralism? How do you see big multilateralism transforming into what going forward? I think that the old method of comprehensive membership and um, universal uh, participation, I don't know if it'll be the end of it, but I don't know if that's necessarily the future of it. I think that international organizations are going to change going forward. And the biggest change is that they're not going to have a particular sphere of influence like they did. So the old style of the league and these were old institutions from the 1800s, health, climate, the specific economics, finance. I, I think that the, the overlap is going to continue and um, much of this change is going to have to do fortunately or unfortunately, with the peculiar role that the United States has played in it. So I think that the United States, the book isn't about it. You know, in fact, in fact, so much of the history of multilateralism has gone on and, be, and preceded the rise of the United States as a global power. So it, it isn't necessarily that the United States uh, diminishing interest is the only thing that matters in the world, but it is nonetheless important. And I think when we look at the example of the United States, we're going to see more of this in other countries, what we've seen. So let's think about the United States for a minute. The United States didn't join the League of Nations. The United States was very involved in the reparations and the negotiations that went on throughout the 1920s. Uh, the United States was very involved in creating the Bank for International Settlements. Americans were on League committees. We participated in the Bruce Committee reforms. And again, you, you're aware that American philanthropy built the library of the League of Nations. I mean, the United States was very involved. The whole notion, that's a, that's a misunderstanding in the United States that we were not involved in the League of Nations. However, you know, we have a history of negotiating organizations and treaties and not joining them. Like right now, UNCLOS, the Law of the Sea, is, is a continuation of that, where we negotiated it and, and then we don't get the benefits from it. I think, fortunately or unfortunately, we're going to see other countries exhibiting 
similar behavior. And obviously, China is is one example that comes to mind. It's a country that's benefited from the multilateral order. It's a, a formal member of many and most multilateral organizations. How it chooses to contribute resources will vary. How it honors its obligations in different conflicts. So will it be the same in the Arctic as the South China Sea? That won't be consistent. And it won't be this kind of big multilateral where we've had representatives and committees and delegations. You're going to see individual politicians breaking from their own country on different uh, issues, good and bad. So we've seen, you know, the, the British politician, David Miliband, speaking an awful lot about migration. And um, his party isn't in power now, but he represents the International Rescue Committee. And he can still be a voice, speak about European refugee issues, even though the whole situation with his own country has changed. So I think we're going to see an awful lot of that. Philanthropists separating from what their countries want, countries not being consistent in their application, and organizations dabbling in each other's businesses. Let's stay a moment longer on international organizations. Now, international organizations are a fixture of multilateralism, at least since since 1919, a little bit earlier, actually, if you think of the World Telegraph Union, the Postal Union, and other phenomena like that. But, you know, today, large organizations in general, and international organizations in particular, suffer from several pathologies. They have a bureaucratic uh, layering, they have structures that have aged not exactly very well everywhere. But there still are these global centers for global dialogue, understanding, fair voting, and what have you. There are places, spaces, in which multilaterals can be practiced instead of uh, just talked about or adhered to by rhetorical consensus. So when you look at these organizations, you have to admit, on the one hand, that if it wasn't for the UN, we would be rather behind the curve in terms of human rights, climate change, sustainable development. On the other hand, you have to admit that they're not adjusting fast enough to what seems to be the rise of global problems. So problems that were more or less perceived as national solvable issues are becoming problems that need to be solved globally, as if multilateralism is much more useful now when he's perhaps being under attack more than in the, in the past or the recent past. How do you see this? This is discussed in your book. How do you see it in the present context? Yeah, I think we have to ask the question, what does solve the problem mean? At what moment does a problem have a beginning and a middle and an end? And here, I, again, my experience in the UN archives, I think, is when I, when I remember working in the library and all, you'd look at the old card catalog. I don't know if it's still there or not. But you would see these problems, the problem of Palestine, the problem of narcotics trafficking, you know, numerous things that were from the 1920s. And, and the old system of cataloging documents, and they're still with us. So on one hand, you could look at that and say, I mean, what is multilateralism solved at all? But by the same token, you know, in politics, this is where working practically in politics matters, because it, you work on an issue, you pass it on to the next group of people who work on it. You work on it, you pass it on. So the fact that international organizations have not 
quote unquote, solved a problem entirely. That's a little bit much to expect, I think, in, in the great world's political problems that have their roots, if you, you know, depending on how we want to look at it in, in human nature, even. I mean, the old international relations way of understanding this. So you look at a problem, I think Hans Morgenthau was one of the famous theorists who said, look, people are going to die. We're never going to solve the problem of death. That doesn't mean that we don't try to mitigate suffering, that we don't try to prolong death as possible. We don't throw up our hands and say that because a problem isn't eradicated completely, we've been a failure. And when we look at international organizations and these problems, I think it's the same thing. They are still centers of expertise. The amount of expertise on any international issue that is contained in the specialized agencies of the United Nations of the people who work with them in domestic governments. I mean, that is a body of knowledge and a way of attenuating suffering that we need to be respectful of just because the problem hasn't gone away. Well, there's all kinds of problems that are are really, by their nature, just never going to be solved. So how would you say, in a nutshell, the future of multilateralism will differ from the past of multilateralism? It's interesting because we look at democracy right now and, and so there's a great debate about democracy going on and it, within Western democracies, but also in other countries. And one of the big advances of multilateralism was that countries would make decisions by voting, that they would meet, they would discuss things, and they would make a, a decision that would benefit the most of them. This is something that's under fire in, in governance in general. Uh, do, do we make decisions through voting? And some people have a bigger stake in some issues than others. So is it really the right way to go about these problems? But there's no doubt in my mind that broader participation in the work of international organizations is is the future because technology will make it possible. And also there needs to be constituencies for these organizations built in the countries that are supporting them. So as long as they're state-based organizations, the citizens in those states have to support them. And in order to do that, there's going to have to be broader methods of participation. I'm I'm a little ambivalent about non-governmental organizations because they did broaden participation. But like I like I said, they broadened participation in some cases in organizations that weren't necessarily perceived so positively. The participation of transnational corporations in the WTO was not perceived positively in many parts of the world. But by the same token, human rights organizations, they've had their own scandals and their own questions raised about how much they truly represent people. Uh, When they could look at a problem, maybe in their own country, it wouldn't be defined as a human rights challenge. So problems of poverty or police uh, brutality, they haven't necessarily been taken on by international organizations. And yet they certainly pose uh, huge political problems in Western democracies right now, particularly in the United States. So trying to reformulate some of these problems and make them fit the modern world uh, is going to be necessary for large international organizations to continue their work. Thank you. Uh, Professor Lavelle, before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to give you an opportunity maybe to give some guidance to our audience about, you know, websites, resources, other books that you may want to recommend them for more knowledge and getting deeper into the study of multilateralism. 
Yeah, well, if you're interested in the book, I would suggest going to the Yale University website because it tells you where else to buy it. I, I think they've done a great job of showing you other vendors. You might uh, find it easier. But I think in terms of learning more, you know, I think that uh, right now we're also constrained by the pandemic. But we also have incredible opportunities because so much of the work of international organizations and the other organizations is is uh, online. So I would recommend that viewers interested in this could connect with think tanks. So the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, truthful disclosures, I'm a, a global fellow of the Wilson Center, but their their activities are all online now. Similarly, Asha Yeet, the, the graduate school in uh, Geneva, has had a, just a terrific series on world health. And I think it gives people the opportunity to see the, the workaday people. If people are interested in the Arctic area, the Arctic Circle Assembly has just done a great job of keeping that dialogue going because researchers can't go to the Arctic. So I think um, keeping up through that certainly has kept me busy and connected and uh, obviously, any of the materials that are available on the, the organization's websites, they all do a great job now, too, of keeping their agendas open. Students are really appreciative of that. Thank you so much, Professor Catherine Lavelle. Thank you for joining us on the podcast episode to discuss the challenge of multilateralism, which is the title of your latest book. Thank you so much. <laughs>